All right. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And today we have a special treat uh, for you guys. I, I'm joined by a special guest, uh, Dr. Thomas McAvoy. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Hi, how are you, Dale? I'm doing great. Doing great. Yeah, uh, Tom reached out to me by by uh, email. I think you were on uh, my uh, our mutual friend, Guy Powell's podcast. About right. Yeah, just recently I did a podcast with Guy He's, he does a great job on, on his show and stuff like that. So, yeah, awesome. So, so Tom is joining us. He he is a, a scientist, and, and he's written a, a new book that he's going to tell us about in a, in a little bit about, uh, about science and faith. What's the relationship between, um, you know, scientific beliefs versus religious beliefs? How do they, you know, uh, can Christians be scientific in coming to religious faith and stuff like that? So. Yeah, just uh, before I, we start getting into the various topics for today, Tom, do you want to just kind of introduce the audience as to who you are, uh, give us a little bit about your background um, as well, if you don't mind sharing sure. your Sure, channel. I'd be glad, glad to do that. Um, I am currently Professor Emeritus at the University of Maryland in, a, in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. Um, I uh, taught chemical engineering for just shy of 40 years. Uh, the first 16 were at the University of Massachusetts, and then the next 24 at the University of Maryland. Uh, I was married to Jesse McAvoy, 
for just shy of 41 years. Wow. She passed away in 2004. And uh, I remarried and Susan and I will be remarried, will be married uh, about 18 years uh, this year. Um, I basically I went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school. Uh, we used to go to mass uh, regularly on Sundays. And uh, what really sort of started me down a different path in terms of uh, a faith journey was Jesse's passing in 2004. She developed a, a very rare and horrible type of cancer, pseudomyxoma. Uh, with the cancer, you wind up getting these uh, enormous tumors in your, they're mucinous tumors in your peritoneal cavity. And you're little, literally crushed to death from the inside out. You die of starvation. Uh, it's just, it's a terrible disease. And uh, I watched her go through that. And uh, that led me to the question that, you know, Job asked, why do these things exist in the world? Uh, you know, what, what's the point of them? So after her passing, um, I did a couple of things. Uh, in, in my church, there was an evening uh, discussion group that started that fall. She passed away in June. And it was on St. Paul's Epistles. And I attended that. And I started to read a lot about science uh, and again, trying to get an answer to, to this question. And I also started, um, interestingly, a research program on the disease that had taken her life. There was almost nothing known about it. And I had a hypothesis that it might have a bacterial component to it. And amazingly, that research is still going on after 20 years. We've had great difficulty in getting funded for it because it's a rare disease, but we published five papers and there's another one in the works on it. I also, uh, as part of my faith journey, around 2014 started to get interested in the Shroud of Turin and I published four papers on the Shroud. I'll talk about one of them uh, at the end when we get to the material on the Shroud, but I checked this morning and it's had, uh, I think it's 21, 2,341 reads on, uh, on the internet. So, uh, so that's kind of my background and, uh, uh, you know, where I'm coming from. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's great. Great to have you on the show and stuff. I'm looking forward to hearing because I, I'm always interested in myself as a philosopher. I, I love the philosophy of science and, you know, understand, uh, how do we use as Christians um, use scientific evidence? So um, I know that you, I kind of alluded to the fact that you wrote, uh, recently wrote a book called God the Geometer, How Science Supports Faith. So in the first place, do you want to just kind of tell us a little bit about, about your book, you know, where, where the title came from, uh, what are sure. some of the topics, and uh, why did you write this book? Okay, um, I just clicked on the PowerPoint, so I can't see you, but I guess, can you still see me? Yep, uh, so it's showing the cover of your book right now. Okay, very good. Well, let me, let me just work with this. Uh, this is the cover of the book, and uh, it came, I, I was, when I wrote the book, the book is really uh, 
the result of the 20 years of studying that I did after Jesse's passing and uh, the insights that I've learned. And when I sat down to write the book, uh, I was looking around for a title or thinking of a title. And there were a lot of books on science and faith. And I wanted something that might be a little bit catchier or different. And in searching around, I discovered God the Geometer. And I'll just read the description uh, that I got from uh, Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. It comes from a 13th century codex. Uh, it was published around 12, 1230. And it said science and particularly geometry and astronomy slash astrology was linked directly to the divine for most medieval scholars. The compass in this 13th century image is a symbol of God's act of creation. God has created the universe after geometric and harmonic principles. To seek these principles was therefore to seek and worship God. And I thought, wow, that's perfect. And, you know, it's a little bit of a different title. The subtitle is How Science Supports Faith, which was almost what I used for the title. So that's where the, that's where the, 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 the title for the book came from. Um, so, uh, let me go on and, and just, uh, address some of the points you raise. Who's the book's audience and what should people take away from it? Uh, the first, uh, set of people I was addressing the book to were, were people like me that were asking Job's question. When you have to deal with, uh, things like, cancer or other miserable diseases or uh, other things that have been labeled natural evils, uh, tsunamis and earthquakes and storms, you know, why do these occur in our world? So uh, that was one group of people that uh, I was interested in addressing in the book. The second group was the people that are bombarded today by agnostic and atheistic media experts, Hollywood uh, celebrities, et cetera, et cetera, that basically have the message that, uh, you know, religion is passe, faith is passe, science has all the answers. And I think they're absolutely wrong on that. And so I wanted to, uh, to publish this book, put this book out in order to refute those arguments. And then the third, group of people were my children and grandchildren and stepchildren and step-grandchildren uh, and just try to share with them the, the insights that I've been able to gain since I started looking seriously at science uh, after I had retired and Jesse had passed and uh, just and also at religion and uh, try to, to, to give them the insights that uh, that I have uh, have gotten. Now, what's the takeaway? The takeaway, and, and several other people have pointed this out, and this message needs to get out more strongly. Modern science does not conflict with faith at all, but it actually strongly supports faith. And so that's the, that's the takeaway from the book. Um, you would ask also, about the topics in the book. And uh, here I've got a list of the, the major topics. And I wanted to, uh, the, the ones in green I'm gonna talk about first, 
but I, I have uh, two chapters on the Big Bang. Uh, I have one chapter in our solar system uh, and in, in two of the three chapters there, I emphasize the fine tuning that had to take place in order for intelligent life to exist on our planet. I've got three chapters dealing with evolution, uh, chapter on, on free will and quantum physics, chapter on natural evil, we'll come back to those, and then two chapters on miracles, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that at the end as well. Um, so let me, let me take a look at the, at the Big Bang, and I don't know, you know how familiar your audience is with it, and I'm not obviously in a, in a you know, uh, one hour, it's impossible to go into all the aspects of the Big Bang, but I wanted to talk about two important aspects. One is the energy, and the second is the fine-tuning for life uh, from the Big Bang. So here's a picture, it's in a way a grisly picture that I have in the book. And this is uh, a picture of Nagasaki after the uh, atom bomb was dropped in 1945. And you can see that there was total devastation. Now I'm gonna hold up a, a penny. And uh, can you see the penny? Dale? Uh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a little small. Though. Okay, well, I can move it up, but uh, it's it's a penny. It turns out that that bomb had 14 pounds of plutonium in it, and uh, less than uh, less than one gram was converted into energy. One gram of the plutonium, and that's equivalent to about a third of the size of a penny. Okay, okay. so you can imagine. Uh, you know, how much mass is in the third of, of, the, of, of the penny. It, it's almost nothing. And yet it did all of this damage uh, to Nagasaki. So you can say, why did that happen? And uh, one, of the, one of the fascinating things about the Big Bang is that our universe started out and it was entirely energy. There was no mass present when the Big Bang occurred. But the amount of energy is, in my mind, the closest thing to infinity that you can possibly imagine. Uh, and to explain that, you need to look at Einstein's famous equation, his E equals mc squared equation, relativity, relativity equation, published in 1905. Um, and E is energy, m is mass, and c is the speed of light. And that's an enormous number. C is 186,000 miles a second. So if you take that and you square it, you get a gigantic number. And that's why uh, if, you, if you just convert less than one gram of plutonium to energy, you get this enormous effect, the, this enormous energy uh, that uh, I showed in the last picture. Now, we can rewrite that equation and we can say, okay, um, if I'm going to create, and what happened was in the Big Bang, the energy actually evolved into mass. So mass was created from the original energy that was present. And if you look at the, the equation, the mass 
or mass is equal to energy divided by the speed of light squared. So if I consider myself, you know, I uh, weighed myself yesterday at the doctor's office, I'm about 200 pounds. There's enough energy in my body, if it could be recovered, to, you know, probably blow up most of the United States, if not the whole planet. Uh, fortunately, when a stable molecule or atom is formed, that's it. You can't get the energy back from it. So you can't take the calcium, the carbon, the iron uh, that's in my body, the oxygen, and recover energy from it. But in order to make me, the amount of energy required is pretty enormous. And then look around and, you know, my condo here has so much mass that it would blow up the planet if we could get the uh, energy out of it. Then you look at the, our planet or look at our solar system or look at the universe as the amount of mass that's present. And to me, uh, the energy that was required to create this mass at the Big Bang is the closest thing to infinity that I can imagine. And it, it, it just, uh, it, it, it really highlights the, uh, the power of God uh, in, in creating this much energy in order for the Big Bang to take place. Now, the fine tuning that happened in the Big Bang is, is pretty amazing. The Big Bang happened roughly 13.8 billion years ago. And one of the things that is true about it is that it was an ex nihilo creation, exactly what the Bible says. Before the Big Bang, there was nothing. The Big Bang occurred with this unbelievable, almost infinite amount of energy. And the universe was born. And I think it's the ex nihilo cre creation aspect of the Big Bang that really bums out a lot of the atheistic and agnostic. They don't like the fact that the universe had a beginning. Uh, and that's why they've developed things which we'll talk about later, like the multiverse or some of the other, the bouncing universe, because uh, the fact that uh, the Big Bang agrees with the, with, uh, the Bible uh, they start out with the assumption they've got faith that God doesn't exist. But this is one aspect of the Big Bang uh, that is interesting. Now, what amazes me is the time scales involved in the Big Bang. When the Big Bang occurred, uh, the, the universe was tiny and it started to expand. And the expansion was enormous. And following Einstein's equation, the energy was created to mass. So electrons were formed, protons were formed from the energy. First it was subatomic particles, and then we got electrons and protons and some other things. But the Big Bang, uh, and also then the protons, uh, a proton is the uh, nucleus of a hydrogen atom, the protons fused and they made the nucleus of a helium atom. So two protons could become uh, a helium nucleus. Uh, and there was a tiny, uh, tiny bit of um, 
uh, lithium, I believe it was, the third element in the periodic table that was made, but it was very, very small. But the expansion was so fast that the collisions necessary for smaller molecules or smaller atoms to fuse together, and they were nuclear, the nuclei, they weren't atoms at that point, just stopped. So you only had 20 minutes uh, at the beginning of the Big Bang, and things had to be superbly finely tuned in order for us to be uh, alive today. At the end of the 20 minutes, it was roughly 75% hydrogen and 25% helium. We'll forget about the lithium. And there were no heavier atoms present. So there's no calcium, there's no oxygen, there's no carbon, all stuff we need to, uh, to be alive. And without unbelievable fine tuning, and by fine tuning here, there were probably over 10 physical parameters that had to be superbly tuned such that we did not get all hydrogen or all helium in the first 20 minutes of the Big Bang. So you have this enormous, enormously hot plasma, uh, enormous energy, and hydrogen and helium uh, nuclei are being created. And with just very tiny changes in, in these parameters, what you'd wind up with is either all hydrogen. And if we get all hydrogen, that means there's no way in the world that you're going to get heavier elements. So there's no life. Or you get all helium. If there's all helium, there's no hydrogen, there's no water. So the fine tuning that was involved in the Big Bang is just, it, it, it just blows my mind. And even the agnostic and the atheistic scientists recognize this. And so to get around the fact that um, this fine tuning exists, they come up with the multiverse. And the multiverse is basically a way around the statistics that say that this thing was so highly improbable uh, and if you have almost an infinite number of universes, then you're bound to get one with the parameters that we have. And to me, uh, I find it uh, almost laughable if as a believer, in order <clears throat> for me to, to believe, I needed an infinite number of universes. And the scientists that are agnostic or atheistic only needed one, they'd laugh you off the, the, the face of the planet. But that's exactly the reverse situation where we have one universe, we believe God created it, and we don't need this, this kind of crazy multiverse idea. Um, now the next, uh, th there were other things that happened, but the next interesting part of the um, cosmological fine-tuning is that uh, fusion started up again after roughly 100 million years. So you've got the first 20 minutes <clears throat> and then things are kind of, they're not frozen. The universe is still expanding, but no more uh, atoms are being created. And about 100 million years later, stars began to form and they were formed through gravity. And what happened in gravity is that the, the, the gas was compressed and uh, got to a point where nuclear fusion could begin again. And in this case, there were atoms 
of hydrogen, atoms of helium. Uh, there weren't just nuclei as they were in the first 20 minutes. And the atoms now, the hydrogen started to fuse to helium, but then once the hydrogen ran out, the helium started to fuse to uh, heavier atoms. So an interesting question is, you know, and we're looking at, you know, we've taken the Big Bang from the beginning. It's 13.8 billion years ago. We've only gone 100 million years, but where did the carbon, the iron, etc., come from? <clears throat> and it turns out that as these first generation stars died, uh, they were still fusing heavier atoms from lighter atoms. And once they died, they expelled these heavier atoms out into the universe. Some of the uh, expulsion was dramatic with supernova explosions. Uh, and now out in the universe, in addition to having a lot of hydrogen, a lot of helium, these other atoms existed. And so when the second generation stars were formed, these heavier, uh, heavier atoms were included in the stars, but they were also available for planets to form planets. Our sun is a third generation star. It's, it's burned for roughly four and a half to five billion years, and it's got about the same amount of time to go. Now, the formation of these heavier uh, atoms also required amazing fine tuning. Uh, and carbon in particular, uh, Fred Hoyle was a proponent of the steady state uh, uh, universe. He did not like the Big Bang. In fact, he's the one that coined the term Big Bang as a derogatory term. Yeah. Steady state also needed to have an explanation for how carbon would form. And he uh, uh, hypothesized that there was an activated, an activated state of carbon that existed. This was in like the early 1950s uh, before it was actually measured. And he was out at Caltech and he, he pressured them out there to make the measurements. And sure enough, they found almost exactly the state that he said must exist in order for carbon to be formed through nuclear fusion. So then at that point, people realized that uh, these heavier atoms were being formed within stars. So you can look at this and say, you know, if you're a a pessimist, you can say that we're all formed from nuclear waste. All the atoms in our bodies came from dying stars. Or if you're an optimist, you can say we're formed from stardust. Now, our solar system also is very finely tuned. And I think most people or people may be more aware of the fine tuning in the universe than they are of the fine tuning in the solar system. But there are, and here I've listed, uh, what, seven items. There are more than seven items, just as with the Big Bang, there are probably over 10 parameters that have to be finely tuned or constants in order for the Big Bang to yield intelligent life. So uh, we've got the moon. I'll talk about that separately. We've got Jupiter. Jupiter uh, is not our nearest neighbor. Mars uh, 
exists between us and Jupiter, but Jupiter is enormous compared to the Earth. It, <clears throat> it's over 300 times heavier. And uh, it acts like a baseball catcher. When asteroids come in to our solar system, Jupiter attracts them and sucks them in. And it's been pretty good. There's been only one really big asteroid that hit the Earth. It hit about 65 million years ago. And it was the KT event. It hit down in the Yucatan Peninsula. And it basically wiped out something like 70% of the life on Earth. The dinosaurs were gone after the, the KT event. And I've seen one estimate in, uh, uh, that said that without Jupiter, we might have been exposed to something like 10,000 of these hits over the years. Well, if one of them wiped out 70%, 10,000 would probably do away with life as we know it. We have a magnetic field in the earth. Um, and this is due to the molten iron that exists in the core of our planet. And it's kept molten through nuclear reactions. Uh, Mars does not have uh, a magnetic field. And what the magnetic field does is it deflects cosmic rays from stripping off our atmosphere. Mars lost its atmosphere when the cosmic rays stripped it away. But these, the magnetic field, our magnetic field deflects the cosmic rays. And uh, as a result, we've got an atmosphere that we can breathe. Plate tectonics is another thing that's important. I'll talk about those later on. But Plate tectonics involves the motion of the, the continents on uh, or the shell of our planet around. And when they collide, they create high ground. They also contribute to what something that's been called the, glo the, uh, the uh, global thermostat of our planet, which helps regulate the temperature. Now, if we didn't have plate tectonics, we've got so much water on the earth that we would have a water environment to be no high ground. And you can go on and you can look at all of these other aspects and say, wow, you know, we're really lucky to be here. A lot of people look out at the universe and they say, well, there's, there are billions and billions of stars and there, you know, billions and billions of planets and they're bound to be intelligent life on them. I think that is a possibility, but it sure isn't a certainty. I think uh, there's a good chance we'll find bacterial life or primitive life. But all of the things that we have here on Earth that allow for us to exist, that we really, I don't want to say take for granted, uh, are, to me are absolutely amazing. So in, in my book, I've got a chapter on the solar fine tuning and two chapters on the, on the Big Bang. Um, let's go back to the moon. <clears throat> And here's a picture of the Earth. And our Earth rotates. Um, and the axis of rotation is 23.5 degrees off the vertical. And it stays constant. And the reason it stays constant is our moon. Our moon is roughly a quarter of the diameter of, of the Earth. So it's, a, it's reasonably large compared to the Earth. And the moon stabilizes our axis of rotation. Mars has two small moons, and they're too small to stabilize its axis of rotation. So what I'm going to show you what happened to the Earth without the moon has happened to Mars. So here's 
the situation without our moon. Uh, our axis of rotation would change. So the, the figure on the left has roughly a 45 degree axis of rotation. And then the one on the right has a 90 degree axis of rotation. And as time goes on, our earth would kind of spin like this. It would be very slow. <clears throat> but the problem that you get into is uh, that you start out with the North Pole up at the top of the globe. And as time goes on, the North Pole migrates down towards the equator and the equator migrates up towards the North Pole. Well, with that type of a, a change in climate, there's no way that a really diverse life on this planet could evolve because of the environmental changes. It's interesting if, if the listeners want to check this out, just Google life on our planet without a moon. Uh, it would be quite a bit different and it would probably be limited to niche areas uh, of the planet and not nearly the areas that we live on. So, um, Dale, I think you have a question about uh, other cosmological models. Yeah, yeah, because uh, obviously atheists, they'll, they'll come back when, uh, you know, in terms of the universe having a beginning and they'll say, well, oh, not so fast, you Mr. Christians, because we have, you know, dozens of eternal cosmological models. So, yeah, like what's, what's your take on that? Have, have we actually proven that there is a beginning of the universe and does that speak to God, God's existence at all? Uh, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> they, as I said, the, these people have come up with some really creative things uh, and it's mainly driven by their faith in the fact that God doesn't exist. So it's, it's based on faith. I mean, I, I forgot to mention with the, with the, the multiverse that, you know, they'll claim that we have this almost infinite number of other universes. The problem is there's no way to observe them. So it's, it's, you have to take on faith that they exist and you can't communicate with them. You can't observe them. So you say, what's the difference between that and faith in God? Well, anyway, they have a bouncing universe, which would have a series of uh, a big bang followed by a big crunch, followed by a big bang, big crunch, and, and other models, and they're mathematical models. Father Robert Spitzer wrote a book in 2010. It's, it's not the easiest book to read. It's called New Proofs for the Existence of God. <clears throat> in part of it, he talks about the fine-tuning and all of the constants that need to be fine-tuned in order for uh, us to exist. Uh, after the Big Bang. But he's also got a section, and I'll read it. it. He discusses a theorem, and this is a you know mathematical proof that lays out, and he lays out four major conditions that any model of a universe would have to satisfy in order that the universe it describes not have a beginning. Okay? Now, this is a, a pretty sophisticated theorem, you know, that... It, Spitzer is, is amazing in his knowledge of theology, philosophy, and, and science, uh, uh, just very unique. But his conclusion is that almost all these alternative universes have to have a beginning, that they can't be uh, uh, infinite in time, if you will. They have to be a beginning, and, and the theorem proves that. 
So uh, I think these people that are that are proposing these uh, need to satisfy the four conditions that Spitzer lays down uh, in in his book. And uh, so I don't think I don't think they're really a, a, a challenge to uh, believers' faith. Do you mind? Uh, is it okay if I just ask a couple quick follow-up? Sure. Not not yeah. Just out of curiosity, so. You mentioned about the fine-tuning of the universe and stuff, and um, you mentioned that it's fine-tuned for uh, not just life. I think you said intelligent life specifically. Um, now, some atheists have come out with kind of a rejoinder and said, no, 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 that's totally wrong. The, the universe is finely tuned for the creation of black hole, not for intelligent life. That's just an accident. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that objection or what you make of that. <laughs> well... There, there are, there are obviously each uh, each galaxy uh, apparently has a black hole at its center, um, and and whatnot. But I'm not sure what they're getting at. I mean, our uh, Milky Way has a black hole in its center, but we're uh, we're uh, revolving around the center of our universe, and uh, you know maybe eventually once life is gone, maybe everything will collapse into the black hole. But uh, uh, I think if they look at uh, what is necessary for life to exist, uh, all of the, the fine tuning of the physical constants, if they look at our solar system and what's necessary for life to exist, including intelligent life, I don't see how they can make that claim. I mean, I don't know what they're getting at. So I haven't really seen that argument per se, but to me, it, gotcha. it, it's not very powerful. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, another uh, uh, quick thing, uh, two more quick questions. And one is about the, the multiverse. And I noticed you said there is no, nothing we can observe. No, there's no empirical proof for this. Um, right. No, I, I remember hearing a couple of years ago that, some atheists were claiming that uh, there was some empirical support in the cos cosmic micron background radiation, microwave background radiation, um, based on the distribution or whatever. Do, do you know anything about that? Like what they were talking about there? Or? For for the multiverse or for our or for the Big Bang? They were saying it was for uh, like it supported an inflationary multiverse. Yeah, apparently, I, I think that the inflation is is uh, from what I've read. I haven't read a lot on it. Is probably true. Uh, the uh, in, in order to explain some of the properties of our uh, of our universe. Now, I think that some of these people uh, have talked about eternal e inflation, so that they're going to be to space that all of a sudden are going to go boom, like have a big bang. I don't think they've observed any of that in our universe. Again, it's one of these one of these hypotheses, uh, but uh, there is no actual data for uh, the internal in inflation idea that uh, there are going to be space uh, uh, patches out in our universe that are going to just start having their own big bang. Um, <clears throat> So, and now the, the inflation is may well be necessary at the very beginning in order to have some of the properties that we have in our universe. But uh, that would have occurred after the Big Bang, the inflation. And so, uh, and in terms of observing the multiverse, 
to say, okay, now we're in our universe, <clears throat> we're going to take a look at a neighboring multiverse or a neighboring universe. There's no way to do that. It, it, it just, you know, it, it's a hypothesis. The same thing with the inflation. Uh, we may be able to prove that inflation occurred uh, in our universe at the very beginning of the Big Bang, mm -hmm. but that does not imply that it's it's ongoing now. Gotcha. Okay. And last uh, follow-up question on, on this part of the presentation. Um, are, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with like Bill Dembski's intelligent design theory based on specified complexity where you, you know, you, you specify something and, and it's complex. Like I'm, I'm just kind of wondering um, what do you think of intelligent design theory being applied to the fine tuning of the universe or the solar system? Yeah, I, I don't like intelligent design. I've got a whole chapter on it. And the problem with intelligent design is it's not science. Um, and as a result, what it'll say is if you get to something that you can't explain, then God jumps in and does it. And as soon as you say that, there's no way to test that. So uh, they used the term at one point, creation science, but it's not science. And I, my own opinion is, I think some of the things that have been uh, uh, <clears throat> taken as, uh, or, or proposed by the, the people that are the uh, intelligent design people have been explained in science. For example, blood clotting was one of them, that uh, blood clotting involves 13 different steps. It's a, it's a clotting cascade. Mm -hmm. and a hemophiliac is missing one of the components uh, of the, one of the 13 clotting factors. And so if they get a little cut, <clears throat> they can bleed to death. So the idea was, this is a, this is a complex process. And uh, there's no way that it could have evolved. And uh, one of the people that I quote in actually in the chapters on evolution <coughs> and uh, the chapter on intelligent design. And also later on in the book is Ken Miller, who's a, uh, a biologist up at Brown. And uh, he actually lays out a very reasonable uh, hypothesis as to how the blood, blood clotting cascade could have evolved uh, uh, and and uh, and they actually provide some uh, he provides some uh, citations that backs up his claim. Whereas the intelligent design people just simply say, "Well, it must be God jumping in and designing the whole blood clotting system." So um, the one area where um, I think that there possibly could be uh, could be uh, God stepping in would be in the in the creation of the original DNA molecule, but I'm not even sure about that. But I think a lot of the stuff that I've seen from intelligent design, it just isn't science. And I think, you know, and if you're looking at how complicated life is, if you look at things like blood clotting and other bio biological processes, it's easy to pick them out and to say, oh yeah, you know, we we can't explain how this evolved. And it's, it's quite difficult to take the time and to show, yes, there is a mechanism for these things evolving. So I, I'm not a fan of intelligent design.
Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Cool. So uh, I think we can kind of switch gears here because in, in your book, um, outside of these these issues, you also deal with the issue of free will. And right. The question. Me, yeah. Okay. Uh, so we, we talked about evolution here and I do have chapters on quantum physics and free will, a chapter and one on freedom and natural evil. So let me let me talk about quantum physics and free will. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not the first one that <laughs> has identified or, or try to put these two things together. But I believe that quantum physics provides a physical basis for free will. I think this is one of the one of the questions you posed. You know, is there a physical basis for free will? Mm -hmm. Feynman uh, is a Nobel laureate physicist is quoted as saying, nobody understands quantum mechanics. And I absolutely agree with him. It's the most bizarre subject that I have uh, tried to read and understand. It, it just, it's so counterintuitive uh, that it, um, it, it, and I'll give an example of, of it. Uh, <clears throat> quantum physics applies to very small entities. So, <clears throat> this would be photons, electrons, molecules. It in fact applies to everything. But in our macroscopic world, the, the, the quantum effects are, are so tiny that we never see them. So you really see them only when you are looking at very small uh, things like photons, electrons, molecules. And then you can observe the quantum effects. Now, what's interesting is no quantum physics prediction has proven wrong to date. It, it really originated with Einstein's work on the nature of light back in, uh, I think he published that in 1905, and then eventually uh, Niels Bohr got involved. And so it's dating from the very beginning of the last century. So it's only a little over 100 years old. But no prediction has proven wrong to date. But in order to make predictions in some case, cases, you need uh, uh, these hypothetical particles. And if you don't include them, uh, you get the wrong answer. It's like, it's, it's bizarre. Now, the discussion in my book is, again, it, it's based on Ken Miller's insights in Finding Darwin's God. That's also where uh, some of the quotes in the biology chapters are taken from his book. It's really a fabulous book. It's, it's maybe about 20 years old. I guess the, the, the particles that are hypothetical are called virtual particles in quantum physics. So let me give an example just uh, for your audience. Here's a, uh, an experiment, and this has been run many, many times, you know, probably over 100 times. And what you have is a light wave could be generated from a, a laser uh, and it goes through two slits and it generates an interference pattern. What you have is a detector screen. You can think of that as a photographic film and then the film is turned now sideways on the right and you can see the, the pattern that you would, uh, you would measure with a detector if light is coming through this way. On the right is another experiment where instead of uh, having a wave go through the two slits, I fire particles. So these little particles go through 
and they're you know they're small enough that they can go through the slits. And what would happen is, on the right, you'd see two solid bands uh, where the particles have hit the the photographic detector. Uh, what is shown there is they're not solid because it could be like partway through the experiment. But that's the difference that on the left, you've got light wave going through. On the right, you've got particles. So let's now do something a little bit uh, or add something to our experiment. So on the left now, we've got the light wave and I'm going to put a photometer and I'm going to measure what's going through the slits when the light wave is coming through. And as soon as I put the photometer on and I try to measure uh, the, the light wave, that pattern disappears and I get the pattern on the right. Okay. So if I go back here, I start with this, I put the photometer in and no longer do I get the interference pattern. I'd have to actually, you know, change the detector screen to see this. And uh, I get the particle pattern. And I can go back and forth. If I were to take out the photometer, I get the wave pattern. If I put it in, I get the particle pattern. So here we've got <clears throat> a very strange situation where light acts both as a wave and as a particle. It's got a dual nature. Uh, Michael Gillen, in his book, Seeing is uh, Believing is Seeing, has a really great section on uh, God being light. And uh, he points out that uh, he found that the New Testament <clears throat> has a lot in common with, with quantum mechanics because you've got Christ as both God and man. Here you've got light is both a wave and particle. And we refer to God being light. I am the light of the world. And uh, Gillen has some interesting insights on that aspect. But this is, this is a quantum effect. Now, it would be like I'm sitting here and I close my eyes and I've got a table in front of me. My computer is sitting on the table. As soon as I open my eyes, the table becomes a chair. We just don't see that in our world, that the measurement of something changes its properties. That's just foreign to us. And that's the way the quantum world is. It's, it's totally bizarre compared to our every, everyday experience. And, and what's amazing to me is that people were able to decipher these effects and come up with uh, the theory of quantum mechanics and make predictions from it. And the predictions are, are actually, as I said, none of them have been uh, invalidated since the predictions were made. Now, uh, as part of quantum me mechanics, there's something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or indeterminacy principle. And it says you can't know a particle's exact position <coughs> and momentum at the same time. Uh, if things were deterministic, uh, then we could predict the future. If we know the position and the velocity and the forces on all particles in, in the world, let's say, then there's no opportunity for the future to be in it to be anything but what the, the, the model is going to predict it is. There's no variability. The only way for the future to change would be to violate the physics. However, with a, a quantum world that is fundamentally probabilistic and not deterministic, 
then there's no single outcome that's possible. So we could go in one direction or another direction. Uh, and I think this provides a basis for free will that we can actually affect the future. Uh, and we're not violating uh, any, any physical principle in doing that. Uh, I think similarly, God can change uh, things as well. It opens up the possibility for, uh, for future changes, which a deterministic uh, world would, would not uh, allow us. Uh, in a deterministic world, we can you know, calculate <clears throat> trajectory of a rocket to put a man on the moon. And as long as we do our calculations right, we get there. If that were a quantum type calculation, we may get there, we may not, not get there. So they're, they're two completely different things. And at, the, at this quantum uh, level, at this microscopic level, probability uh, reigns. Things are not deterministic. And to me, this opens up the possibility of for free will. So this, is, this, is, this statement summarizes it. Quantum indeterminacy provides a physical basis for free will. I don't think it necessarily ex explains free will. I think more thinking has to be done on this. Uh, I don't think that uh, theologists have fully integrated uh, aspects of modern physics into their theology. And this is, this is one area where certainly a lot more thinking could be done. Now, you can ask the question uh, which Miller uh, asks in his book, can quantum effects uh, have changes that we see in our macroscopic world? And he gives the example of DNA copying, on a, which takes place on a microscopic scale. So when we when DNA is copied, there are four bases in the DNA alphabet. And so the DNA splits and you make a copy of, uh, you know, whether it's a protein or whatever it is, but errors can occur in the copying. And uh, if they occur, you wind up getting a mutation. So you don't get exactly what you wanted uh, from the DNA copying. And this is, this is happening at the microscopic or, or quantum area. And so certainly then uh, quantum effects can have macroscopic changes. If, if, if the mutation is such that you wind up creating a disease condition, say in a person, then uh, that's a result of these uh, microscopic DNA copying errors. Now there's a corollary to this that I think people might have trouble with, uh, but I believe it's true. And I think the corollary is that everything does not happen for a reason. I think a lot of people like to say, well, that happened for a reason or everything happens for a reason. If quantum indeterminacy is true, and if the quantum world is probabilistic, then everything does not happen for a reason. There can be multiple outputs of things. And it's not a deterministic type thing. And I believe, again, here, more thinking has to be done uh, in order to tie these things together. So that's, you know, my take on a physical basis for free will. I think you also asked about natural evil, Dale. Um, just before you get to that, uh, just a quick follow-up. Oops, okay. Uh, 
uh, are you familiar with uh, the neuroscientist uh, Benjamin Libet? He he's done some experiments into whether we have free will or, or not, and he's discovered the free want phenomena. Are you familiar with that at all? And do you think he, he's just, I'm sorry, he's discovered what? Like the free the free want phenomenon, as he called it. Uh, so it's it's basically saying like uh, he measured our brains and when we decide to do something like raise our arm or not, he, he detects that in our brains. Yeah. And there's this thing after that's detected, once we've made our decision, we yeah. have the ability to, to say, actually, you know what? No, I, I'm not going to do it. I veto it. So he, yeah. he says that kind of disproves determinism. I don't know if you. Determinism. Yeah, I agree with him. I think that our thoughts probably occur at the quantum level. And uh, they're, they're obviously, you know, you, you, they're not uh, deterministic where you, you know, you just go in one direction. But I think that our thoughts and just exactly how our free will influences uh, our thinking and, and our neurons in our brain is, is, is an amazing area. And I, I certainly am not an expert in that, but I believe that, uh, that uh, what, what I hear you saying does not disagree with what I'm talking about in terms of uh, the quantum effects and uh, the quantum physics providing a basis for free will. Absolutely. Yeah, it supports you. So, all right, perfect. So, yeah, uh, my next question, as you rightly bring up, is is obviously this thing that started it all off for you, the problem of evil. And given that you're you're approaching this from a scientist perspective, obviously, a lot of atheists, skeptics, they they point to a specific type of evil. So, you know, not evil that obviously they admit that people, you know, maybe they choose to rape, they choose to kill, they steal, but it's more problematic when we look at natural evil. Natural. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. I think as soon as you throw humans into the mix, it's pretty easy to, to come up with evil. But uh, I think that natural evil is is something that uh, needs to be explained. And I'll tell you what I think uh, is involved with it. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, things like disease, earthquakes, that are occurring naturally, that uh, that man is not creating, uh, and say, okay, uh, are these evil? You know, is evil the right word for them? But this is what natural evil describes. And I believe that uh, the basis for this is freedom and the trade-offs that are built into the fabric of our universe. And I think you see these at the macro scale uh, and at the microscopic scale, you know, we just talked about the quantum level and the fact that uh, that it's probabilistic, and there's no one path that uh, things have to take. We're not going to be able to to predict the future uh, at the quantum level. I think the same thing happens at the micro macro level. Uh, I'll give an example of that in a bit, but. Um, my contention in the book is that our universe's design is what I call autonomous. And uh, <clears throat> let me explain what I, I mean about that. I think God created our universe and he fine tuned it so that intelligent life would evolve. Uh, and once it got going, uh, I don't think that it needed constant intervention by the creator. Uh, 
uh, I believe the intelligent design people would say that God is, is uh, intervening more than I would say. Now, I don't mean to say that God does not intervene <clears throat> in the universe. I think that on the spiritual level, there's constant intervention. I think we get insights and what I'll call grace all the time in terms of uh, you know, our faith journey. And I think occasionally, but rarely, God inter intervenes physically in the universe. And I've got examples in my book of this. And I, you know, people refer to these as miracles. Uh, and I think if the, the intervention were more regular or more often, uh, I think we would lose our freedom. I mean, if, if every time we got into a bind, when something happened, and we said, okay, God, I need a miracle now. Um, we're almost getting to the point where we're losing our freedom. So I think that the universe was designed so that it's fine-tuned. I think evolution has patterns in it. Um, one of the uh, uh, chapters in, in the book uh, discusses convergent evolution. Uh, and this is an answer to Gould's point that if we reran evolution, intelligent life wouldn't uh, be the result. Uh, and uh, uh, convergent evolution describes things like flying, that <clears throat> bats have learned how to fly, insects have learned how to fly, birds have learned how to fly. So there are certain, certain things that are advantageous uh, that evolution would pick up on because they would, they would help in terms of the uh, the, the entity that is, is using them in terms of uh, surviving. So there are, there are patterns, there, are, there is fine tuning built into the universe. And I think that in, in that way, God can sort of sit back and let the universe go. And we have something to be free about. We have, uh, we have issues to, to solve. So that's what I mean by an autonomous universe that you know, God interacts with us regularly on the spiritual level and rarely, but definitely on the physical level. So for example, consider DNA copying errors, which I mentioned earlier that Miller gave as an example. Uh, this is a mechanism for evolution to advance. That if, there, if, if DNA copying was like a machine that never made an error, there would be no advancement in evolution. But basically what you get with a copying error is a mutation. And if the mutation is advantageous, then it gets incorporated because uh, more of the uh, offspring survive and, and have offspring of their own. So the whole mechanism for DNA to move forward involves DNA copying errors or mutations. Uh, now, <clears throat> they can also lead to uh, disease. Uh, I believe cystic fibrosis is a disease where there's one gene that's screwed up and it, it causes the disease. So there's a trade-off there. So if you want a mechanism that is basically going to be autonomous, um, then this is, it's going to lead to trade-offs. Um, the year that that uh, I started studying that I mentioned in 2004 when Jesse passed away, uh, in 2004, the day after Christmas, 
there was a humongous earth, uh, humongous tsunami that hit Southeast Asia and something like 180,000 people died. It was just an enormous uh, loss of life. And so people could say, oh, why do we have earthquakes? Let's get rid of them, okay? Well, they result from the motion of the, of the plates on the earth. So if you said, let's stop that, let's not have tectonic motion, then the earth would be covered with water. There'd be no opportunity for life. The other thing that the tectonic plates do is that they re help regulate the earth's temperature. So if you're gonna have a mechanism that creates high land <clears throat> and a mechanism that helps regulate temperature on the earth, then a byproduct that you don't like is the tsunami. And I think this is part of the trade-off that comes from the freedom that's built into our universe. So when I say macro and micro, I think that, um, I think that what, what I see is that we're really almost designed, we are designed to be free, to have free will, but that also leads to then these trade-offs. Right. So I don't know, if, uh, I, I'm not sure there's something else on that. Well, let me go back here. <clears throat> if you have other questions about this. Uh, no, not not on this. I think, I think you're making a lot of sense and stuff like that. Um, one thing, I, so I did. I was going to transition to the shroud, but just before I get there, I did have a kind of introductory question on miracles, yeah. on miracles in general. Like, what's, um, okay. yeah, like what's what's your take on that? Um, and let me just let me just make one point, and then I'll come. I'll go to miracles. <clears throat> I think that in the Bible, there's an attempt to explain away uh, natural evil. Um, in the in Genesis one, they talk about the fact that uh, the people were given uh, uh, seeds and grain to eat, and they, it seems to me they're trying to get at the fact that uh, there were no uh, carnivores that existed. Uh, you know that that obviously the the writers of the Bible would have seen, and the same thing with Adam and Eve. The story there, we see that you know that there was paradise. Uh, and it was only after sin that what we would label as, as natural evils, maybe, or as, as problems came in, like uh, pain in childbirth and difficulty in working the land. And there's the impression that we started out with a, with a perfect environment, a perfect world, and, and it was through uh, human evil that these things changed. And uh, I don't think that's the case. I think that uh, carnivores existed before man did. And I think that uh, uh, some of the other things uh, that we see in the world, weeds and thorns and whatnot existed uh, as well. So let me go to miracles. Uh, I've got two chapters on miracles. And what I've uh, tried to do is to pick miracles where there is physical data that one can get at. So I have uh, a chapter, one chapter on a miracle that occurred at Lourdes, uh, Jack Trainer. And uh, there was a, uh, a priest that interviewed him. And there's a picture of him uh, being wheeled to the train to go to Lourdes in a wheelchair. Uh, and 
There's another picture of him pushing his wheelchair when he returned, you know, a little over a week later. Uh, I've got uh, material on the shroud, which I personally think is a miracle. Uh, the, the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on Juan Diego's tilma, which is in Mexico City and has had some examination, not nearly as much as the shroud. There have been recent Eucharistic uh, miracles uh, that have occurred in South America and in Europe. And then Fatima has uh, newspaper stories and pictures. Uh, so th these all uh, have uh, with them physical uh, information that can be examined. And I like to think of miracle as being equivalent to data for faith, data in quotes, that um, I think a, a lot of, uh, again, scientists would just simply say, well, miracles can't exist. They rule them out a priori. Uh, without looking at the physical data. Now, I put data in quotes because we don't repeat miracles. If I run an experiment in the lab, then I'm going to run probably multiple cases and take a bunch of data and then analyze it. With a miracle, they tend to be one-off events. But there are physical facts. And I think the proper way to approach a miracle is to say, okay, can I explain the data with modern theory? Is it possible? And if it isn't, then the conclusion should be, well, the data exists and I can't explain it with what we know today about physics or chemistry or astronomy or whatever it is. But it shouldn't be, it's impossible for a miracle to happen. And I think a lot of scientists take that view. So I think you said you had a question on miracles. Yeah. No, I think I think you just answered it. So yeah, that I was just going to get kind of a quick little intro. But at this point, I, I do want to transition into the Shroud of Turin specifically. Obviously, okay. this is an area of expertise on your end. So I'll just uh, let me know when you have that up. Okay. But before right. you get into your presentation, yeah, I want to actually just show the clip because uh, I asked you to respond to an uh, atheist YouTuber who's right. a, a nuclear engineer. So yeah. I just want to I just want to play for the audience his little ten minute clip. Um, okay. He's talking about the carbon fourteen dating. Um, okay, so I've added that to the screen. There we go. So yeah, let's just listen to what Jordan, uh, the atheist, has to say about the the carbon fourteen data, and then I'll transition back to you, Tom, to give your presentation. Okay. Paper came to one is a significant in the vertical direction. By vertical, I mean. Are you hearing that? Just so I know, Tom. Did you hear? Did you hear the video? Yeah. Well. Yeah, it was pretty quick, but yeah, he's talking about the vertical like direction the and the other direction. Like between, okay. from the edge of the shroud towards the center, through the different labs, okay? But not in the other direction, not like going horizontally across all the labs at once. That's not too surprising because the sample is long and skinny. So if there's an effect, you would show up better in long axis anyway, right? So that's mm -hmm. not surprising. Uh, that means that there was some kind of real effect that led to a discrepancy, particularly between Oxford and the other two labs. There's something going on that's not just very, like, every lab's going to have some amount of error, and, you know, their, their results are never going to perfectly line up, but this is beyond that. This is such that um, 
those results can't be put together. So the, the word for that is that they're heterogeneous or not homogenous. So you can't just simply combine the measurements together, or you could, but if you did, that wouldn't be representative of the actual average or the mean of the data you're doing. It would be improper. Because right. ideally what you would do is you would send them to three independent labs. They would all give you the same testing protocols and everything. They would all give you results, and then you would take the average of all three if they were homogenous but because they're not, we can't just do that. Right. In a way that they would, another way they could say be non-homogenous. And this is not what happened in the trial, just to explain how it would work. It's suppose two labs tested the sample you gave them, and then the third lab tested somebody's t-shirt by mistake somehow. Those results would not be homogenous. You'd get results and you could put them together, right. but they would not tell you anything about your actual sample, right? They would not be homogenous. Now, this is critical. In section five of the paper, though, it says this. The trend, the thing we just talked about, the trend from bottom to top, this error, the statistical anomaly, quote, the significance of this trend does not depend strongly on the spatial allocation of the samples within the sites. That means in their analysis, it actually didn't end up mattering very much how the labs did their subsamples. Well, what mattered was which subsamples belonged to which lab. So basically who tested it, but not by extension, the rough kind of like location, but not where within the location the samples were. Okay. Right. Because if, if they're picturing like a linear thing, you would expect like, let's say for example, the bottom left corner to the top right corner, then the sample in the here, middle, there would show a line. But if you were to flip and do the other way, we would expect it completely different. What they're saying is it didn't matter which way. It was just like this stack. That's exactly. how it mattered. Right. Yeah. This is extremely important. And I haven't seen anyone else talk about it. So just to make sure I wasn't wrong and like completely off base in, in my institution, I actually reached out to Dr. Riani, who is one of the authors, and I asked him if I was understanding correctly. And in the interest of transparency, so nobody gets the idea that like Riani like read our episode and is like signing off on everything we said. I'm gonna read you exactly what I asked him and I'm gonna read you what he said in response. So that no one gets twisted as to what Riani thinks or whatever. Okay. So here's what I asked. Uh, in the a larger email where I thanked him for his time, et cetera, et cetera. But the actual question was, am I understanding you, mean you, did, you mean you just in that email, hey, what's the answer to this question? Thanks. Hey, hey, hey douche. <laughs> Give me this answer. No, no of course not. He was, he was very polite and kind and gracious with the time. Yeah. Uh, so I asked him, am I understanding this correctly, that the specific spatial arrangement of the samples within a single lab did not end up mattering? In other words, the effect of apparently younger ages in the X1 dimension, and X1 is the one going vertically, didn't depend strongly on whether, for example, Oxford put their samples into rectangles three in a row, three in a column, two side by side and one side from the others, et cetera. So that was my question. About a day later, so very quick turnaround time, actually, uh, uh, he, he responded, uh, this is true that you understood perfectly well. The effect of apparently younger ages in the X1 dimension does not, in all caps, depend on whether, for example, Oxford cut their samples three in a row, three in a column, two side by side, side to the others. The main conclusion of the paper is that the overall sample is not homogenous, in presence of a trend, in technical terms, a non-stationary process, you cannot combine single measurements into a unique measurement. In other words, you cannot compute the mean. Or better, you can, but it is not representative of the underlying mean. Of course, I am a statistician, or I can only state what the data tell me, and I cannot claim anything about the reason of the trend. 
However, the statistical evidence is that there is a clear trend in the horizontal direction. That's what okay, so I, I think that kind of gives the audience a sense. And he, here we have, uh, let me stop sharing. So here, here we have uh, this atheist uh, saying he's found a new criticism and that sort of thing that hasn't been responded to. Well, gosh darn it, you are an expert uh, in the carbon footprint dating. You've published a few peer review, uh, a peer review paper and that sort of thing. Um, so do you want to kind of take some time to respond to Jordan, sure. what he's talking about with the carbon dating? Absolutely. Yeah. Let me put up this, uh, <clears throat> the next slideshow. Um, do we uh, have more than two hours, Dale, by the way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm good to go as long okay. as you need. So. All right. Yeah. Uh, so let me, let, me, uh, let me start out and explain what he's missing, and, uh, <clears throat> and then I'll talk about answers to the points he, he, he raised. Here's a schematic that was taken from the paper that he referred to. Uh, I think it's figure one, and it shows the different... <clears throat> Uh, it shows the shroud sample. So the R is a reserve that I guess the people at Turin kept. T is for trim. They trimmed off that piece. And then there were four samples. A1 and A2 were pieces that were sent to Arizona, Tucson lab. O is Oxford and Z is Zurich. And here's the piece that was finally radiocarbon dated. Uh, Arizona did not date the A2 piece. Uh, and if you look at it, the, the piece that was dated is uh, 0.63 inches, or if you like millimeters, 16 millimeters in width and one and a half inches in length. Now, it makes a point about the fact that in the, in the 0.63 inch direction, uh, they could not see any trend. The fact is that the three labs did not uh, did not publish where their uh, samples came from. Oxford dated three, but you don't know where the three came from in, in this, uh, I'll say, Y direction, the 0.63 inch direction. Zurich dated five. They don't know where they came from. And the same thing with Arizona. I have four in red, and I'll explain why in a little bit. So <clears throat> to say that there's no trend in that direction um, we don't know because we really don't know where the samples came from, but there is a definite trend in the one and a half inch direction. Okay. And they, he basically agrees to that. And here's the data. This is the average of, of what these various, the three labs measured. Uh, the, the dash red line is the best fit. And one of, the, one of the things that's amazing about this is that the change in radiocarbon date is approximately 90, well, 91 inches per inch. So all you got to do is move one foot, you know, up the shroud, and the shroud would date to the future if this trend continued. Now, this is in the, in the one direction that we do know where the samples came from. We know where Oxford, Zurich, and, and Arizona came from. And you see this enormous trend in the data. Now, just as a little aside, Arizona kind of cheated in what they did. They actually dated eight samples. So they cut their piece into eight parts, dated eight. But when they reported the eight results, 
then when they were combined with the other labs, they could not conclude with a 95% confidence that there was a particular radiocarbon date. So uh, somebody put pressure on them and instead of uh, reporting all eight, they combined uh, the eight results into four and reported just four dates, okay? And that's cheating in terms of statistics. <clears throat> What's interesting is that the British Museum had the, had the results of the radiocarbon uh, analysis, and they only released the raw data from the three labs in 2017 after a lawsuit, freedom of, a Freedom of Information lawsuit, 29 years after the damage was done. The statistics reported had errors in that, you know, they should have reported the eight results. And then they could not have concluded that uh, the shroud was medieval. A rigorous analysis of the raw data leads to the conclusion that a single value for the radiocarbon date is not valid. A trend is present. And uh, what's his name? Is it Jason <coughs> or Jordan? He Jordan, yeah. agrees with that. <clears throat> now, what he's missing is uh, all of the other work that's been done primarily by Giulio Fonte. He's done some fascinating stuff where he's looked at, uh, he's developed four methods and he's tested them on a shroud fiber that he had. He has light scattering. The most recent uh, work that he did involved X-ray scattering, uh, light absorption, and mechanical testing, and all of them put the shroud, uh, date the shroud, uh, or if you combine them all, the, the shroud is dated to Christ time. In addition, all the other data about the shroud indicating its authenticity is, uh, is not considered uh, by Jordan. So you have numismatic data or numismatic uh, images on coins that uh, have, have been compared to the shroud. You've got the fabric itself, botany, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> the conclusion, my conclusion uh, uh, about the shroud is that the only negative is this radiocarbon dating. Uh, with its faulty statistics, it should not have reported a medieval date, but it should have reported a trend uh, existed. And all the other evidence uh, just says, you know, this dates from Christ's time. So here's the question. Uh, could the shroud date to the first century AD? And the radiocarbon dating be medieval? Okay. And that's, I think, what this, this fellow is, is asking. And one answer is, if the shroud was exposed to neutron radiation, then the answer is definitely yes. Uh, there may be other answers to this. Uh, if, if the shroud was the result of a miracle, that's a possibility, but let's just stick with the neutron radiation. Uh, the, let me go back here. Phillips in uh, 1989 published a little uh, note or a letter to the editor in, in, in Nature, the same journal where the radiocarbon dating results came out. And he made this point that if uh, neutron radiation had affected the shroud, then uh, its radiocarbon dating could be wrong. So I want to 
first talk about some work that I published, and then I'll show how it relates to what Bob Rucker uh, has published uh, about, um, about the shroud. And I mentioned that I had gotten interested in the shroud roughly around 2014. And I started uh, publishing papers. Uh, I did a conference paper in 2019, and then I had a couple of papers in applied optics and uh, I forget the exact date, maybe 2020. And then the paper I'm going to talk about came out in, in, uh, in 2021. And one of the things that intrigued me was that in 1978, Stirp, when they analyzed the shroud, uh, took ultraviolet photos of the shroud. So, uh, and these were... Uh, only available on the web in 2019. Gil Lavoie and Tom Damala uh, published these, and you can get them today on, on the web. There's, they have shroudphotos.com. <clears throat> and what was done was uh, Vern, uh, Vern Miller, I guess it is, back in, in 78, had a UV light source and a camera and the item to be photographed was the shroud. And let me put up the light spectrum. Uh, and you see two things here. You see UV light and you see visible light. And what they did back in 78 was they had an ultraviolet light source. Now we can't see ultraviolet with our eyes, <clears throat> but we can see visible light. And uh, the ultraviolet light is shined into the object that is being photographed. It kind of rattles around. It uh, interacts with the molecular bonds in the in the uh, item being photographed, and then it reemerges at a longer wavelength in the visible spectrum. So it's called UV-induced visible fluorescence spectrum, and uh, it really reflects something about <coughs> the molecular nature and the bonding of the item being photographed. Now, there are two things you've got to be careful with. The UV light source needs to be such that it doesn't produce any visible light, so you have to put a filter on it. And the camera does not want to pick up any reflected UV light. It just wants to pick up visible light. So two barrier filters are, are installed, one on the camera, one on the light source, and then you start taking pictures. And so here you see the UV light source uh, hitting the, in this case, the shroud, and then the camera recording um, what is, is being measured from the shroud. So the important point here is that this is actual data on the shroud, okay? It's not, uh, you know, and that's one of the problems. I mean, I, I, God, I wish that the powers that be would allow more testing <laughs> allow more testing on the shroud because that's what's really necessary. So here's the shroud. Um, and the uh, you see the radiocarbon dating site. It's way off in the corner. And I show here the frontal and dorsal uh, images. The front, you can see the face and the, and the arms crossed and the dorsal would be the back. And what Sturt did was they took photos down three 
different straight lines. They had a little uh, carriage mechanism and they would move it down the shroud. They took uh, eight photos uh, down each of the two sides of the shroud. And I think there were only six or seven down the center of the shroud. So it may have been a little bit closer or further away in the center. And with the, the colors here, I show what was, was uh, measured. Now it's possible to analyze the photos and determine the intensity of the ultraviolet light that is coming out as visible light. And when I did this, I was amazed at the difference. Uh, for example, if you take ultraviolet photos going down the red line and the blue line, one's at the top, the other's at the bottom, you find out that the intensity of the top is higher than the bottom. If you look down at the, at the, at the plot below, the red has higher fluorescence intensity. This is, again, the intensity of the, the visible light that's coming out than the bottom. You say, why did that happen? The highest intensity occurs down the center of the shroud. And uh, there's another very subtle effect and that is you have to compare apples to apples. Now the two arrows, and let's take the red tracing, point to the feet area on the shroud. The one on the left points to the dorsal, uh, the, the foot in the dorsal image, and the one on the right points to the foot in the frontal image. And if you compare areas, you find out that the dorsal uh, intensity is always higher than the frontal intensity. And the difference can be as much as 10, uh, the, the, the fluorescence intensity units, difference of 10. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. What would cause this type of behavior? And I, I published this in Applied Optics. Now, uh, Here's a, a slide that summarizes what I had found. Again, data from the shroud. The UV fluorescence intensity is highest at the midsection of the center of the dorsal image. And that's the green image on the left is the dorsal image. And that, that's the highest value of any of them. <clears throat> the fluorescence intensity is higher on the dorsal image than the frontal. And this means you compare feet to feet and then you know, maybe the knee to the knee, torso to the torso, etc. And then the fluorescence intensity is higher on the top side of the image than the bottom side of the image. And so the question I had after getting these results is what would cause these unique fluorescence properties of the shroud itself? Uh, and I mentioned that Phillips had hypothesized that neutron radiation arising from the body covered by the shroud could, one, alter its radiocarbon dating, and create long-lived radioactive isotopes of chlorine and calcium in the shroud. Uh, it does not account for the image formation, okay? And it's just a very brief, it's almost like one page letter to the editor. I became familiar with, and I've actually interacted with Bob Rucker <clears throat> and what he did, and he published this in, in 2014 and is working on it, and has worked on it since. Uh, but he simulated neutron radiation. He actually simulated Phillips' hypothesis. And his main assumption is that 
in the simulation is that the thermal neutrons were emitted homogeneously or uniformly, if you will, from within the body and isotropically or uniformly in all directions. And the simulation then calculated radiocarbon dates for various points on the shroud. And he has here, <clears throat> there are two schematics I've taken from Bob's papers. One shows how the body in the shroud was laid out, the top one. And then the bottom one shows his model of the tomb. And you can see that to the right of the, of the body, there's a wall. <clears throat> to the left, there's empty space. And he had this uh, code that uh, I believe he had worked on when he was uh, at uh, uh, the, the lab out in, uh, in Washington that he used for his simulations. And he ran a bunch of Monte Carlo simulations. And here's what he got in terms of his radiocarbon dating. And this is now down the center. He, he had results down uh, the whole shroud. I'm just showing the center image here. And if you look at the circle, uh, you can see that comes from the, the area of the shroud that was actually radiocarbon dated. And you can see there's a pretty, pretty significant gradient there. And we saw when we looked at the numbers, it was about 90 years per inch. So there's a pretty steep gradient over there. And as you get closer to the center of the shroud, then it becomes younger and younger and younger. And eventually, uh, you wind up having it date to the future. But this is, this is, these are his results. And the X axis or the Y axis here are the radiocarbon dates uh, that he's calculating. <clears throat> when I plot my UV results, and again, the UV are results from the shroud, I was amazed. <clears throat> I got the same, <clears throat> same type of curve that, or plot. You can see that there's a double maximum. The, the dorsal image or the back image is on the left in both cases and the frontal image is on the right. The biggest maximum occurs in the dorsal image and it occurs right around the torso area of the body. And the frontal image, the same thing, the maximum occurs around the, the, the torso uh, area of the, of the body. But to me, these were pretty amazing. I mean, this is like saying I've got an orange and I've got an apple and somehow the orange looks like the apple or the apple looks like the orange. And here are, here are Bob's conclusions from his uh, neutron simulation. The radiocarbon dating values are highest at the midsection of the center dorsal image. The radiocarbon dating values are higher on the dorsal image than the frontal and on the top side than the bottom side. And if I just replace these with the fluorescence intensity, I get the same conclusions. So then the question is, could fluorescence intensity be affected by neutron radiation? Or could the apple be an orange? Now, I wound up doing some uh, neutron radiation experiments at the reactor at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And I got modern linen samples, actually Bob's daughter mailed them to me. Uh, and these were irradiating, 
with increasing neutron fluence, increasing neutron intensity, if you will. And I took UV photos. So here you see my very extensive uh, experimental setup. I have a camera. It's hard to see, but there's a flashlight that uh, has a UV source in it. I've got filters on the camera and on the source. And I've got like a chemistry stand where I put the, uh, the linen and the flashlight is <clears throat> uh, putting a UV uh, light down to the linen and I'm measuring it with the camera. And here's what my neutron radiation experiments on modern linen showed, that there was a definite trend that uh, fluorescence intensity actually increased as neutron fluence increased. So uh, that verified the, the hypothesis that maybe these two things are related. So my conclusion was that UV fluorescence intensity of linen increases with neutron fluence, <clears throat> which leads to another conclusion that neutron radiation can explain both the shroud's unique UV spatial properties. And here we're talking about that gradient that you see in Bob's results and it's medieval radiocarbon dating result. Uh, so the, the point that uh, Jordan is raising is, uh, you know, or maybe he's not saying that there isn't a potential explanation and the UV or, or sorry, the uh, neutron radiation <coughs> would have occurred uh, at the time of the resurrection. Now, I want to uh, also talk about some stuff that I have in the book that I don't know again if your if your viewers have seen. Uh, sorry, uh, just, sorry to interrupt. Just before we get into this aspect, uh, just one quick follow up on what Jordan was saying because I I've uh, debated him as as a layman on the the carbon dating and uh, one of the things he'll say and uh, Hugh Ferry also says this is they'll say that. Look, if you're if you're a scientist doing proper science, you would never believe in a, in a miraculous neutron irradiation. It's much more probable that there's some kind of uh, natural contamination that Oxford Labs didn't clean off properly. And they say that's a more probable explanation that explains the data. And as a scientist, you should prefer that to neutron irradiation. What what would you respond to? Uh, well, again, I think I think they just immediately rule out the possibility of a miracle. Okay, <clears throat> and if you do that, then you know it, it's like saying uh, with the Big Bang. I mean, uh, the fine tuning that they actually see is present it has to be explained by taking a position that God can't exist. So they come up with the multiverse. I think in the case of the neutron radiation. What you need to do is look at the physical facts and just see if there's, uh, you know, is there a way of verifying these? For example, uh, <clears throat> lightning has been shown to, to produce radiocarbon. Uh, and this holy fire that I'm going to talk about, it has a light that comes down that is similar to lightning. So what's needed is to, to do any experiments that can be done and to examine the facts and not to rule out any assumption. But if they just say, well, okay, it must be a lab problem or it can't be a miracle, 
they're only looking at part of the of the of the evidence that that is there. So I think it's very close-minded myself. And uh, but that's my opinion. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. No. Cool. I wanted to to get your take on that. So yeah. So so let's uh, move on. The holy fire. Let me let me talk about the holy fire. And I'm putting up a a picture here. I'll describe the holy fire, and then I'll come back to this. But um, this is a, an amazing picture that uh, Giulio Fonti published. It's in his new book, but it's also in his paper. Uh, he's got a couple of papers that he's published on this. And uh, he's holding a, a bunch of candles here with a flame coming out of them. And it's uh, flame is, is uh, going underneath his chin, okay? And he's obviously not screaming in pain. Uh, I'd like to see Jordan explain this. Uh, and I'll come back, come back to this. But let me, let me talk about the Holy Fire. This occurs on Holy Saturday at Christ's tomb. Now, this is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Uh, the Holy Saturday is uh, the Orthodox Holy Saturday, not the, the Roman Holy Saturday. And the reason I make the distinction is that they use two different calendars. Sometimes they're on the same day, but other times they're not. So it's the Orthodox Holy Saturday. And, and, and the reason that people in the West probably haven't heard about this very much is because it's, a, it's an Orthodox Christian tradition. And uh, this, uh, I think it's Alex Scarlachitis, I guess, has written a book on the Holy Fire. Uh, it's basically happened since the fourth century AD, which is when the church was built. And it's happened essentially every year. In his book, he has uh, about 70 historical witnesses from various documents over the centuries that have described seeing the fire. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it's a pretty amazing book. Um, what happens today is that the Orthodox patriarch, uh, well, first off, the, 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 the area where the Christ tomb uh, is, is locked and, and checked uh, before uh, Holy Saturday. And then the Orthodox patriarch goes in and he's examined to make sure that he doesn't have things like a cigarette lighter or, or matches or something like that. He goes in with candles and the eticule, which is the structure, is closed. And he emerges with the fire uh, after uh, it occurs. <clears throat> and during its occurrence, and on the, on the internet, people can see images of it. There's sometimes like a blue, almost lightning-like uh, uh, effect that happens uh, in conjunction with the lighting of the holy fire. And there are movies of that and, and photos on the internet. He comes out and then he, he uh, lights the, the candles of people that are waiting outside the eticule. So in Julio's case, he has gotten his candle lit from the one that the patriarch um, brought out. And he had made some measurements himself um, 
when he went over and actually uh, had this photo taken. Now, it's interesting that Julio could hold this underneath his chin, but after about 15 minutes, the, the flame actually then becomes a standard flame. And if he had it there for 15 or 20 minutes, he'd be burned. But when it first comes out, it, it, it doesn't burn, uh, which is the amazing thing about it. Now, in 2008, there was a Russian physicist that made electromagnetic measurements at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And these are uh, his conclusions. The inexplicable appearance of plasma, which according to Volkov is a, is a miracle itself. These are actually were published by, by Julio. Now the plasma is what's called the cold plasma. <clears throat> and people can generate these in a, in a laboratory, but it takes quite a bit of equipment to generate a cold plasma. And the fact that it's a cold plasma explains why it doesn't burn. But after a while, the cold plasma gets hot. But when it first comes out, it's cold enough that you can stick the, the flame underneath your chin. So one question is, <clears throat> How, how is this cold plasma generated in a church without any scientific equipment? Um, Volkov also measured some interesting electrical properties, you know, unreasonable electric charge in the air and a, a, a powerful difference in electrical potentials and the appearance of an electrical discharge at the moment of the holy light descending uh, give Oh, email, I must have not copied everything there. But he measured properties of this <clears throat> phenomenon. And then, <clears throat> as I say, Julio followed up on it, went over, made some measurements himself. He's published two papers on it. And he, in his recent book, uh, is uh, also has information on this. And one of the interesting things in his papers and in his book is he lists 24 different properties of the shroud <clears throat> that would need to be explained by any theory that proposed, purported to, do, to uh, describe how the, the image on the shroud was formed. And he believes that the holy fire has the potential or can explain all 24 of these properties. Uh, I think it's, it may be the, the most unique research that Julio has done on the shroud and if you look, you know, just look at this and say, you know, if that isn't a miracle, I don't know what is. Uh, <clears throat> so in my book, I have a discussion of the, the shroud and I have a discussion of the Julio's work on the, uh, the holy fire. Uh, the miracles that I do talk about in the book, uh, I don't try to, you know, you could write a whole book on the, on the shroud or on the uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe or uh, on uh, miracles at Lourdes. But I give references and then give essentially the key items and then people can go look on their own. So uh, Dale, I don't know if you have any question on the Holy Fire or on the Shroud. Um, yeah, I think uh, one, one thing on the uh, kind of related to Julio Fonte's research in the carbon 14 dating uh, uh, Fonte wanted me to ask uh, Jordan, so I'll ask you about his research um, regarding the blood. And he, he found uh, an anomaly in the blood stains that 
kind of speaks towards whether the shroud was neutron irradiated or not. Do you do you know about that paper and what what's your take on that evidence? Wouldn't that be this is, to face this is where this is where he found that there wasn't any nitrogen in the blood or on the shroud? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I uh, I actually had tried to see if my samples could be analyzed for nitrogen. I sent them to Penn State. But uh, their uh, equipment wasn't uh, able to do the analysis of, of, uh, of nitrogen. That's a possibility. I know, I believe Julio is still working on this. Um, and uh, that would be the kind of thing that, uh, you know, that effect that, that uh, it would be a physical effect that people could actually look at and see. There was also talk of maybe taking some uh, bloodstained uh linen, uh, neutron irradiating it, and then, you know, checking. And uh, I looked into that a little bit. And one of the problems is that it wasn't clear that that laboratory that I was dealing with, which was uh, around the time of COVID, was going to be happy uh, getting a biological sample to do the neutron radiation on. But I think these are all leads that could actually generate data that would say, yes, the neutron radiation is, is a possibility. But you have this strange, almost lightning-like uh, uh, effect that comes down at the time that uh, the, the holy fire occurs. You've got these electromagnetic effects that have been measured. Um, could there be neutrons in that? Possibly. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that the, the neutron uh, hypothesis has been proven. Uh, to me, it's pretty amazing that uh, the, the fluorescence intensity of the shroud itself has the same shape as what uh, Bob Rucker is calculating with his neutron simulation. Does that prove it? Absolutely not. I think what's needed, and it's, it's a crying shame, that we don't do more testing on the shroud. And, and uh, the simplest test would be to take samples from other parts of the shroud, I believe that some of the charred material that was occurring closer to the center uh, of the shroud where the images could be radiocarbon test. But the, the powers that be are almost, you know, they've got their heads in the sand. Uh, they're, in the, they're in the foxhole. They don't want to come out. Uh, afraid that they're going to get the same result that they got in 1989. And that, that's too bad that there really needs to be data uh, on the shroud, and, and people have done an amazing amount with what is out there. And as I said, these UV photos only came out, you know, almost 40 years or over 40 years after they were taken. So uh, there's a real need to, to do more research on the shroud, and uh, I'd be the first one to say that maybe this is an incorrect hypothesis, but let's, you know, let's get the data and see what's what. I put up... Uh, couple of things here. I just put in a little plug for the book again. It, it's going to come out mid-March and the publisher is Wiffenstock. It'll be on their website. It's not there yet. I just turned the galley proofs in and they're, they're going to be printing the book and it'll be on Amazon. And if anybody would like to get, if they, uh, Julio's papers are in the public domain. Uh, the book, as I said, is, is a bit expensive. It's about $85. But the two papers are free and they're on the web. And if anybody can't find them, if they send me an email, 
I'll be happy to email them a copy of the papers. Uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, Julia, Julio is way out there in terms of interesting ideas and uh, uh, done some fabulous work on, on the shroud. So, uh, so that's it. I don't know if you have any more questions for me, but it's been fun to do this. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. Um, I do have one one last quick question because I, I noticed that you did go with Julio's new hypothesis from divine photography, um, and I'm just kind of wondering, like, what do you make of that in comparison to other, you know, like Bob Rucker's uh, vertically collimated um, uh, radiation burst hypothesis or Mark Antonacci's? or John Jackson, what do you, uh, why would you, why do you think Julia uh, is where it's at relative to other ones or are they all? Yeah, I, I think Julia uh, would be a good guy for you to get on to talk about that. But I think the four, the 24 points that he lists that have to be explained, I think any of these theories would have to be able to, to cover all of those points. And uh, I think one of the things that, pushed Julio to look at this holy fire was to try to see if there was some way to explain all of these aspects of, of the shroud, the mystery that's there. I think you get a lot of, uh, of theories that might explain half of them or, or more, but they can't explain all of them. And so that's what I like about Julio's work is that he lists the 24 and he said, now here's what I'm saying with the divine photography. And uh, I've actually worked with Julio. We were trying to look at other UV photos that were taken. And he's, he's pretty particular and pretty demanding and doesn't just uh, throw stuff out there. Uh, it turns out that we weren't able to get any good information from the other UV photo that was taken. I think it was uh, several years before the, <coughs> the, the stirp photos were taken. But uh, he's... Uh, he's very creative and very incisive in what he does. So I think that if all of these are laid out together, you'd have to say, okay, look at the 24 points. <clears throat> are all of these valid? And then which uh, uh, does a particular theory basically satisfy all of these 24 points? And Julio claims that his uh, divine photography does. So that's why I like it. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah. And just for the audience, I, I'll say, uh, I believe it or not, uh, Tom, I did have Julio and uh, Bob Seifker. Uh, okay. So they wrote the book. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. Good. Yeah, that's, uh, awesome. Yeah. So thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, I'm very happy to do it. Excellent. Yeah. I, I might, uh, I might call on you again to be on a panel show. Sure. Uh, at some point, if you don't mind. So yeah. That'd be fine. Uh, that'd be great. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us and joining me. And uh, yeah, um, just so the audience knows, this isn't my only uh, Shroud-related show this week. On Saturday, the 17th, uh, Bob Rucker and Hugh Ferry will be coming on to discuss uh, the various radiation-based hypotheses and what are the pros and cons in favor of those. So uh, it's going to be related to what we were talking about today. So look out for that. Right. Awesome. Very good. All right. Have a great week, have, everybody. And have a great have a great day and a great weekend. Thanks for inviting me. Not a problem. Thank you, Tom. Bye bye. All right. I've hit the